Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. Good to have you with us as we continue in this series together. I have a question. I'm curious. Have you ever heard the name Genghis Khan? Most of you have heard that name, right? He founded the Mongol Empire. His mounted archers were the best the world has ever known when it came to warfare, so much so that they were able to conquer every territory that they set out to capture. In fact, through Genghis Khan and his army, they would become the largest contiguous empire in the history of the world, at one point encompassing one-fifth of the globe. Genghis Khan and his army were completely unstoppable. Nobody was able to stop or halt their progress. Well, the book of Acts that we're in is the story of an unstoppable God. It's the story of God's Spirit moving through God's people to accomplish God's mission or God's purpose. Last week, you and I saw that God's Spirit is unstoppable. And it's through God's unstoppable spirit that he launched this unstoppable movement, which is the gathering of people who turn to God. You and I, we happen to call it today the church. From its inception, the church has been this unstoppable movement of God's spirit in the lives of people. It didn't begin as an institution. It didn't begin as a tradition There were no buildings and and Bibles and bulletins or bands. There's no facilities. There's no staff. There's no hierarchy. And the unstoppable movement of God centered on an event in history, the resurrection of Jesus. It's unfortunate that this unstoppable movement of God has often been reduced to a location. And one of the reasons that this unstoppable movement of God has been reduced to a location or a building is because the early Bible translators, they weren't the most accurate. And as a result of their translations, a great deal of confusion, misunderstanding, wrongdoing, and even sin by the, quote, church has existed over the centuries. Now, what in the world am I talking about? And what does this have to do with this unstoppable movement of God? Uh, Some of you might be aware uh, the language that the New Testament was written in. Does anybody know what language it was written in? Greek. Some of you guys know it was written in the Greek language. And there's a specific word in Greek. It's the Greek word ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. Ekklesia is used about 115 times in the New Testament. And the word, the word ecclesia literally means a called-out assembly or a called-out gathering. It's an assembly. Everybody say assembly. It's going to be important for us today. Now, uh, this word we see used in the New Testament. Let me give you an example. Let me set up this story here. The Apostle Paul, he was in Ephesus. And there was this guy by the name of Demetrius, a local business owner, and he didn't like the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel went contrary to their specific culture. And the gospel that Paul was preaching was a threat to them, to their businesses, and also to their worship. So Demetrius ends up stirring up the crowd and getting this mob of people. 
They grab Paul and his companions, and they try to basically escort them into the largest place that was in Ephesus, which was the theater. And so they're gathered there in this theater, and there's this giant mob, and you can read about the details in Acts chapter 19. But I want to give you three specific verses. And I want you to notice, in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, it says this, of these people who are gathered in this theater. The assembly, everybody say assembly. The assembly was in confusion. Some were chanting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there, which is interesting because isn't that how mobs work half the time and and people don't even know why they're there. They're like, oh, let's go do this. Verse 39, uh, a a person speaks up and he says, if there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. Everybody say assembly. So this mob wasn't the way to handle this. Verse 41, after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. For the third time, say assembly. Assembly. In these three instances, the Greek word ekklesia is properly translated as the word assembly. All the other times the Greek word ekklesia is used in the New Testament, it's essentially inaccurately translated as the word church. Why does this matter to you and I? Well, Jesus is the one who launched or created the ecclesia. He launched or created a called-out gathering, a called-out assembly of believers, and he did it with one mission and one purpose. He tells us in Matthew chapter 28, that was to make disciples. That was to make disciples, to, to grow the assembly. Well, unfortunately, as time went on, this movement of God focused on making uh, disciples, this, this movement which would be an assembly of believers, it began to shift. And their focus shifted. And they started focusing on location and hierarchy. Why? It's because those translators actually replaced the Greek word ekklesia with what would be our word church. Where do we get our word church? It's actually from an old English word, which means house of the Lord. Everybody say house. The English word traces its origins to an old German word, which traces its origins to an old Greek word, kyriakon. Did I lose anybody? So let me say it another way. The Greek word found about 115 times in the New Testament is the Greek word ekklesia. It means an assembly, a called out gathering. But that word in the New Testament has predominantly been replaced with this Greek word kyriakon, which means house or, or house of the Lord. And so you can start to see some of the challenges and some of the problems. Because within about 300 years of Jesus, the idea of a movement, an assembly, it transitioned. And it transitioned from a, a group of people called out. It transitioned to a location to a building. But the reality is there's no relationship at all between the idea of a movement, an assembly, a gathering of people, and this idea of a house or the Lord's house. In fact, where do they get that idea? They get that idea from the Old Testament. The Jewish people had their temple, so they were familiar with this idea of a house of the Lord, the Lord's temple. Before long, it became clear. Those who controlled the church, the, the building, they're the ones who control the scriptures. 
And those who controlled the scriptures controlled the people. So those who controlled the building, the location, the church, controlled the scriptures. Those who controlled the scriptures controlled the people. And those who controlled the people ultimately controlled the government. And that's how government and religion or Christianity became so intertwined. All having its roots in this idea of a location, of a building, of a church. Over time, what was meant to be this movement, this assembly of called out people who would distribute truth throughout the world, it became focused or it became a focused institution, if you will. And in some cases, this institution, it was immoral, it was destructive, it was unethical, and at times even pagan. In some cases, the church, if you will, had absolutely no reflection as to what happened back in the first century when you had this called-out assembly, a gathering of people that was launched. In fact, there were actually sinful centuries in church history. The linguistic change from ecclesia, which is a gathering of people, to the idea of a location, a building, a church that had little reflection of what Jesus intended when he said to go make disciples of what Jesus set up in the beginning. But because God's movement is unstoppable, something did happen in the early 1500s. There was this linguistic scholar uh, from England, England by the name of William Tyndale. And Tyndale had this desire for the average person to be able to read the Bible. Back then, I mean, you and I, we take it for granted today. I mean, we can read the Bible anywhere, however we want. We can go on our phones. It's just available to us. But back then, the only way you were going to read the Bible is to go to church, to a building, and listen to a priest, and he would read the Bible. And by the way, he'd read the Bible in a language that you didn't even understand anyway. So the priest controlled the church, if you will, controlled the Bible. Thus, they controlled the messaging. Thus, they controlled the people. Tyndale did not believe that that's what God had intended. Tyndale didn't believe that that was what God intended to have this movement of God spread. And so what did he do? He translated the Bible, and he used the, the Hebrew and Greek, the original Hebrew and he, original Greek, rather than to use their Latin translation, he translated it into the common language of the people. And thanks to the Gutenberg Press, which came about less than 100 years prior, he was able to mass produce it and get it out to the people, to circulate it among ordinary people. How do you think that made the church authorities feel? Church authorities were enraged because they claimed that the scriptures could only be read by the clergy. The clergy therefore declared Tyndale, for lack of better terms, an outlaw. And so he was on the run. Eventually, Tyndale was betrayed by a friend. He was caught and he was put in jail. It was time for him to then go on trial. And during his trial, he spoke up and spoke out to these religious leaders. And he said this, it's a pretty famous quote, but he basically, he said this. He said, if God spares my life, I will cause a boy that works in the field to know more of the scriptures than you religious leaders. How do you think that made him feel? 
He also accused these religious leaders of manipulating the scriptures in order to control uh, um, the people, in order to control the, the government and the politics of the day. How do you think that made them feel? Tyndale suffered for it. He was martyred. He was, he was hung. And he was killed. Well, the problem is, people had copies of the Scripture now. The Word got out. You've heard that phrase before, right? It was literal. The Word got out. And the institutional church, the leaders that thought in terms of location and control of people and control of government, they began to lose power. Why? Because now the average person, you and me, we could actually not just listen to what somebody said, we could actually look for ourselves and we can see what God's word says. And they discovered that, quite frankly, a lot was being, that was being said wasn't biblical. Now, one of the choices that drove the church leaders crazy is that Tyndale didn't use the word church, location building. He didn't use the word church, Lord's house, when translating the Greek word ekklesia. He used the word congregation instead. At that time in, there, in, in the 1500s, that was the best word that described, best defined the word assembly or gathering. Uh, he, so he used the word congregation because that's what ecclesia meant. It was a congregation. It was a gathering, a called out assembly. He understood the ecclesia is the unstoppable movement of God, the assembly of God's people. It's not a building. It's not a location. It's not an institution. Tyndale understood exactly what Jesus tried to create. You see, Jesus was with his disciples and he had traveled into the northern region of, of, uh, of Israel up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And while he was there, he said, hey, guys, you've been with me for a while. Um, I'm curious. What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? Some of the disciples say, well, well a lot of people think you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Some other disciples say, well, there's some people who think like you're like one of the Old Testament prophets or some version of that. And then Peter said this. Peter said, I think you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus replied to him, he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this, meaning the statement that he made that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, this statement that you made was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I don't have time to go into that, it's where they were, Caesarea Philippi, they were literally on this giant rock. He said, on this rock, which was called the gates of hell, he said, on this rock, I will build my, and what does your Bible say? I will build my, my church. But that's not accurate. Jesus was accurate. He said what he said, but the translation of it wasn't accurate. Why? Because that word in that passage when Jesus speaks in the original Greek is the word ekklesia. Jesus said, I will build my ekklesia, which is not a building. I will build my ekklesia, which is an assembly, a gathering, a called out group of people. And he said, the gates of hell will not overcome it will not prevail. Jesus said, I'm building 
an unstoppable movement of called out people, called out for a purpose, to make disciples, to grow the assembly. Soon after that conversation, Jesus was crucified. He rose from the dead. He then spent about 40 days with his followers. And right before Jesus ascended to heaven, he set the stage for the unstoppable movement of this called out assembly that we call the ecclesia. Here's what he tells his followers. We looked at this briefly last week, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 in a moment if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said to his disciples, you will receive power. Everybody say power. Power. You're going to get power. And what's that power? It's when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We see right there Jesus describing the beginning of the movement of the called out assembly, this ecclesia. A few days after that, there's the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. We talked about that last week, and you have 120 or so of Jesus' followers at that time, and they're gathered together, and if you remember, they're not gathered hidden away in some upper room and fearful for their life at this point. They're gathered together. Does anybody remember where they were? Anybody remember? They're at the temple, right? They're at the temple along with thousands and thousands of other Jewish believers uh, in God from around the world who had gathered for Pentecost. And there they are at the temple, and suddenly, Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4 tell us that suddenly these followers of Jesus are filled with power that Jesus predicted would happen. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit descends on him in such a powerful way and it manifests itself in such a way that he, uh, the Spirit allows them to speak in such a way that everybody understood what they were saying in their own language. So you can imagine, all of a sudden there's this, there's this energy, there was this power, that, this wind that came from God. It, it descended on these followers of Jesus. They see this fire, which you talked about last week, on the disciples, and they start speaking, and everybody understands them. And everybody's thinking, how do we understand these fishermen from small little region in Israel? How do we understand them? And what is the Savior that they're talking about? Who is he? And as people are asking these questions, and as they're wondering, Peter speaks up. And Peter starts by drawing from the Old Testament, from a prophecy in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Many of these people who had gathered there in the temple at Pentecost would have understood Joel. And Peter tells them, basically says, hey, you guys shouldn't be surprised. God told us in advance, God pro- this is what he tells them, God prophesied in advance that one day he would pour out his spirit. And when he pours out his spirit, everyone would have the opportunity to be saved. And then Peter goes on to tell them how they will have that opportunity to be saved as he lays out the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pick up that story. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter says it this way. He says, fellow Israelites, I want you to listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And so Jesus, Peter right now is sharing recent history. Because it had only been a few weeks prior that Jesus was crucified. So this, as Peter said, this Jesus of Nazareth, 
I'm sure many of those who are in the audience at this moment, they're hearing this, and they're thinking to themselves, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. That's right. That, I, I remember him. I got to hear one of his messages one time. Man, that was powerful. Somebody else might be thinking, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, yeah. He was that guy who healed my best friend. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth. I remember. I was there. There's like 5,000 of us, and some little kid had a couple fish and a couple of loaves of bread, and Jesus somehow miraculously fed all of us. I remember that Jesus of Nazareth, because this is recent history. And then Peter actually said in that passage, God had planned that it would happen, that Jesus would die. Don't ever forget, Scripture's clear, no one took Jesus' life. He chose to lay it down. And in verse 23, Acts chapter 2, Peter went on and said, you, with the help of wicked men, referring to the Romans, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So basically, Peter's preaching the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Jump ahead to verse 32. Peter says, but God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Everybody say witnesses. That's important for us to understand because if you're here today and you're not a Jesus follower, if you're not a Christian, or if you're praying for people that, that don't know Jesus and, and they don't know the Lord yet, it is important for us to understand this is a huge part of Christianity. Christianity from the very beginning, it was about embracing a true event in history. They said, we're witnesses of the fact that Jesus was crucified. We're witnesses of the fact that we saw him dead. We're witnesses of the fact that we saw him buried, laid to rest in a tomb. We're witnesses of the fact that he rose from the dead three days later. He came back alive. We're witnesses of the fact, and it wasn't a one-time thing. We saw him multiple times over the course of 40 days. And in light of all that, Peter said this, therefore, in other words, in light of everything I just told you that he... He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. He says this, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, and he gets a little personal, whom you've crucified. Like, you know, hey, some of you were probably around when this happened, and you didn't speak up when he was crucified. He said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And a hush follows over the crowd. Why? Because he just said this person he's talking about is the Lord, is the Savior, is the Messiah. Remember, in the first century, everybody had the hopeful anticipation that the Messiah was coming in their lifetime. The Savior was coming in their lifetime. And so the people hear this. And what does the Scripture say next in verse 37? It says, when the people heard this, and they were cut to the heart. It means God grabbed them. It means they understood in their heart, in their mind, in their spirit. They understood what had happened. Their eyes were opened. And so being cut to the heart, being moved by the Spirit of God, they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What do we need to do in light of this reality, the fact that Jesus came, died, was buried, and rose from the dead, and that he's Lord and Savior? What do we do about that? How do we respond? that Jesus is alive and that he is the Lord and he is our Savior. And Peter replied, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter replied to this, and notice what it said. Peter replied, go to church. 
Is that what it says? That's a different translation. The it doesn't exist translation. <laughs> Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And here's the promise. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the gift that God said he would send. Peter went on, this promise, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, it's for you, it's for your children. And here's the really cool part. This affects us. Look at this part. And it's for all who are far off. You see, this is Peter's way of saying this thing that began in our midst, this message, this momentum, this movement, all this supernatural power that we're all witnessing and seeing today, this whole thing will reach beyond us. It will reach beyond our lifetime because remember, what did Jesus say? He said, I will build my ecclesia. No, he didn't. He said, yeah, he said, I'll build my ecclesia. He didn't say, I'll build my church. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> He said, I'll build my ecclesia, my gathering of believers. He didn't say, I'll build my, you know, a building. I'll build my church. The momentum will continue. The ecclesia will thrive. It will be an unstoppable movement. So the crowd hears this. What do they do? How do they respond? Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Man, it's incredible to think about. A couple thousand years ago, 3,000 people said, we believe. We believe the testimony of these eyewitnesses of that fact about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe that he was crucified, buried, and that he rose again. We believe that he is the Lord and Savior. And so what did they do? They said, we repent of our sins, just as Peter told them to do. And we want to get baptized to demonstrate that Jesus is now our Lord and Savior. And so that day, about 3,000 people became part of the assembly, the gathering, the ecclesia, the unstoppable movement of God, just like Jesus predicted, just like he said would happen. And the gates of hell have not prevailed and have not overcome the ecclesia, the assembly, the movement of God, what you and I call the church. Now, I know you and I will continue to use the phrase church. We're going to continue to say we're going to church. I get it. I understand it. It's a hard habit to break. But let's not reduce church to a building or a location. The church is you and you. It's God's people. It's the assembly, the called out group of people called out for a reason, a mission, and a purpose to make disciples, to grow the assembly. We are part of the unstoppable movement of God. You and I, the gates of hell will not overcome us. No circumstances. No situations, no government, no army, no economy, nothing can stop God's movement. Do you believe that? Nothing can stop the movement of God. His assembly that he has built. And so as we wrap up today, I want to ask you a question for you to think about as you allow the Spirit of God to speak to you. 
What's your role? What's your part? What's your next step in the assembly? What's your step that God's calling you to in the body of Christ? Maybe for some of you, you're here today and praise God you're here. But maybe the reality is you are far too isolated from the ecclesia. That too much of your life is spent as a solo believer, a solo Christ follower. You're just kind of doing faith on your own. God, for some of you, the Spirit is speaking to you saying, step further into the assembly. God, it's not about a church building. It's about the people of God. You're part of the people of God. And maybe for some of you, God's Spirit is calling you to engage more with his assembly, his people. Interesting, I think, uh, very interesting. Hebrews chapter uh, 10, verse 25 says this, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves if some were in the habit of doing. Again, not a building, not a location. It's the people of God. Don't forsake being with the people of God and gathering because you're part of this unstoppable movement of God. Some of you, it's time to start encouraging the ecclesia. What I know is there's a lot of hurt and there's a lot of pain in this world. And the people of God aren't immune to the hurt and the pain of this world. And I know it. I know many of you. I know many of your stories. We've talked. We've shared. We've prayed together, cried together. I know the hurt and the pain that exists. And I know that God is calling some of you to step into the gap to be that encouragement to others, to God, for God to use you to bring healing to other people, for God to use you to help restoration happen and reconciliation to happen, for God to use you to speak God's truth into the lives of others. For some of you, God is speaking to you and saying it's time to use your voice to speak to God's assembly, God's people. Maybe some of you, it's time to serve the assembly. You've just been, you know, on the sidelines. And the assembly suffers when you don't use your gifts, abilities, and talents that God has given you. So for some of you, God's calling you to step in and step up and start serving the assembly. Some of you, the reality is you're not living a godly life. And because you're not living a godly life, you are harming your witness. And that's affecting those you have influence with outside of these walls. And it's harming your witness here in the assembly of God's people. And so God is calling some of you in a very direct way to get right with him, to recommit to him, to repent, and to begin to live a godly, upright life. Some of you, you haven't been baptized. You're a Jesus follower. You love Jesus. He's your Lord and Savior. But you haven't done what God said, I want all people who are part of my assembly to do. You've repented, but you haven't been baptized. And maybe that's your next step. And then maybe, just maybe, some of you here are not yet part of the assembly. You're not yet part of God's family. And right now, God invites you to, enjoy, to, in, to join the family of God. What do you have to do? What do you have to do? I'm just going to use Peter's words. Repent and be baptized. What does repent mean? 
Repent means simply this. Hey, I've been living my life for me, and I've been walking this direction. I do what I want, and I do it my way, or what culture tells me, or whatever my interpretation of God's word is. I'm going to live my life my way. Repent means, uh uh-uh, I'm turning around. I'm going the other direction. I'm going the direction of God. I'm, he's the Lord. He's the Savior. So I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to turn around and focus on Him and turn to Him and lean towards Him and step into Him. And so if you're here today and you're ready to join the family of God, turn. The Bible says when you do that and you give your life to Christ, times of refreshing will come. So what is God's step for you? What is the Holy Spirit calling you to do in the ecclesia? What is your role in the body of Christ? Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.